What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. Libido. The originally Latin word means desire and lust. Libido isn't good or bad. It just is. And for most of us, our desire for sex varies throughout our lives and often from day to day. Libido differences within couples are extremely common, partly because we are all unique and so are our lives. These differences can become challenging if there's a significant, consistent difference, such as when one person in a couple pretty much always desires sex far more often than the other. That's actually one of the most common reasons couples seek sex therapy. We've talked about intense challenges with mismatched desire before, most recently in the episode called Sexual Discomfort, You're Not Broken featuring journalist Steph Autary. Today, you'll hear the stories of two couples who found ways to make things work in spite of these differences. You will hear about some challenges and heartache, but you will also hear a lot about mutual respect, creativity, and love. If you would like to get more creative in your sex life or could use some accessories to spice things up, head to thepleasurechest.com to check out their latest specials, toy recommendations for all genders and relationship styles, and more. Click their Valentine's Day gift guide for a featured collection of their favorite vibrators, wands, strokers, and app-controlled toys for solo and couples play. As a bonus, you'll get free shipping with any order over $75. Again, that's The Pleasure Chest at thepleasurechest.com. Now, the story of a couple who decided to go by the names S and C. S and C describe themselves as foodies and scientists, and they have been together for about 10 years. When S replied to my written query of questions, she said that out of herself and her boyfriend, she is the one with the higher libido. S said that she is, quote, revved up and raring to go most of the time, whereas C is not. S and C also have different sexual interests. And one reason I chose to feature their story is what S shared about that in her note. She said, Libido is just as much about the kind of loving partners want as much as it is about the frequency. Of course, most people don't realize they have different libidos from day one or even early on in a relationship. S and C surely couldn't have known about their own differences when they first met during college. The very first time I saw C, I was at a LAN party, and he had just come back from snowboarding. So, but after that, we had a mutual friend who we hung out with often, and because we were hanging out with the same friend, we ended up being friends as well. At that time, they also didn't predict that they would soon fall in love. I didn't know right away. My mom will claim she did, but that's not really foresight. She made that prediction about everyone I meet. (laughs) The friendship blossomed into something more, much more, as they developed a strong and committed love for each other. Often when I talk to folks about their experiences with significant mismatched libido, they tell me about patterns. I hear comments like, I have always had a higher or a lower sex drive than my partner's. Given that S said she's pretty much always ready to go, I asked her if she sensed early on that her interest in sex 
might be on the higher end, relatively speaking? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I did not start masturbating until like the first time was 14. And then I didn't start doing anything on a constant basis until I was like 18. So I would not say that it had occurred to me at that time. However, that did not mean I wasn't interested in reading a lot of romance-related fan fiction. I knew that I was interested, but I would also say that I'm a late bloomer in general. C considers himself a bit of a late bloomer in the sex department, too. He said in his teens, he felt social pressure to be more sexually interested than he was. And he did explore a bit, on and off. Things picked up more consistently around 19-ish. But I didn't know if my libido would be super high or low in a relationship until we were actually there. Once S and C's relationship turned romantic, they experienced that proverbial honeymoon period when intoxicating brain chemicals flow wildly. At the same time, they experienced challenges that so many of us do during our early sexual experiences, especially when we haven't learned much about sex. Really early on in the relationship, we were both struggling to come to terms with sexuality. But shortly after getting over that hurdle, we were both very gung-ho for a good couple of months. So we didn't notice a discrepancy in libido until we had stabilized. Yeah, I'd agree with that. We definitely did a lot of exploration together, which I think helped overall with our understanding of the sexuality and and the libido to begin with. Over time, the initial fireworks settled down some, as they naturally do, but the mutual understanding kept on as their intimacy deepened in other ways. S and C quickly embraced not only how different their libidos were, but the realization that they wouldn't be able to fulfill all of each other's sexual needs beyond sex frequency. I identify primarily as gay, so when it comes to more lusty, physical kinds of sexual interest, I'm much more aimed towards male, and when it comes towards romance and relationship passion, then it's right there with me, and we can take care of that together, and they're just kind of two separate buckets that are both under the umbrella of sexuality. When S and C realized they wouldn't be able to fulfill all of each other's sexual needs, given C's orientation, the fact that S is bisexual and sometimes prefers sex with a woman, and her higher-than-his sex drive, they decided to maintain an open relationship. They don't consider themselves polyamorous because they only have sex, not full-fledged, love-based relationships with anyone else but they like the term non-monogamous. That openness comes in especially handy around particular activities. Uh, As C has so kindly reminded me at this very moment, since C identifies mostly as gay, he is not particularly interested in going down on me at all. (laughs) He doesn't go down on me because that's not something that interests him and does not please him at all, but it certainly pleases me. So if I'm getting together with somebody else, I will usually... uh, make a request to get that need fulfilled. While non-monogamy has been extremely helpful for C and S, like all relationships, it's had its challenges. Here's one example. Since romance is important for C in terms of sex, he sets boundaries with partners, letting them know that while he enjoys that aspect, it's not going to lead to a deeper relationship. But not everyone has fully understood that. I enjoy recreating the honeymooning kind of experience and getting a lot of infatuation in a relationship. And some of my partners did well to respect boundaries to a point and then ran away off on the deep end the last minute and had rougher breakups. (laughs) And that was interesting for us to communicate through. That was definitely tough and has happened uh, a couple times now. 
usually a bit more of a I told you so moment uh, in both instances. I was like, I think they're uh, falling in love with you. And C was like, I'm not so sure about that. I established boundaries with them. They don't need to be told again. It's a lot harder to find people to have relationships with when you straight up front that they're not going to be your primary. They're not going to steal you away and make you a husband. So that's a little more difficult on the casual dating side of things. But each partner I have been with has understood pretty well the boundaries and the expectations of the relationship. The myth about libido that S told me most bothers her is one that I find really frustrating too. I mean, the big one for me is that women don't have a libido or that their libido can only be fulfilled through other people instead of through masturbation. That's just crap. S is pretty passionate about solo play, which I'm sure has been especially helpful through the pandemic. And those false notions about women's desires take other forms too. There's the idea that men are always turned on or always have a higher libido compared to women, for example. In reality, libido is not determined by gender or genitalia. We are all unique and many factors play a role. As far as navigating desire issues and getting needs met, both S and C pointed to communication as the most important tool and the one they rely on the most. We have a good open communication, which means that we can easily understand that we have different things that we're craving uh, when it comes to libido. So sometimes we want the romance, which means that we really want to be together because we love each other. But also sometimes, you know, you want to relive the passionate honeymoon phase, as you had put it earlier. Since we are well past that at this point in our relationship, sometimes that involves getting somebody else into the home. And then there's also what kinds of things we might be interested in to go with our libido. And if the other person isn't interested in them, we might ask, you know, especially if it's something new we haven't considered or haven't considered recently, then we might bring it up again. If they're not interested, then we try to respect the other person's wishes and find a different outlet. A relationship is about two people communicating and cohabitating and all that. So if you're going to be in a relationship with someone and you want it to be meaningful, communication shouldn't be a downside or a turn off. Like, I know it's not embraced in our culture so much, but and really communication helps with relationships at any level. Um, so getting over that stigma is just really useful. I would say C and I have built a relationship on communication. The earlier in your relationship that you can talk about this, you should. Because for some people, it can be a deal breaker. And if this is something that's important to you, then it needs to be out in the forefront early. We actually had a mutual friend who uh, got married. And then three months in, the significant other said that they wanted to be poly. And they were not interested in that at all and ended up getting a divorce pretty quick. And it was very sad. I thought they were really good together. That is sad. And I love that she pointed out that libido differences can be a deal breaker for some. Knowing that about yourself when it's the case, along with any other non-negotiables, is as important as communicating about them. One current example of a mismatched desire S and C have been discussing lately is rope play. It was right before COVID started that I was starting to be like, hey, maybe I should find a outside partner to try this out with and see how much I want to get into it. But then COVID happened and I really put it on the back burner. I'm interested in it and C is not interested in it at all. But for me, I'm like, oh, getting tied up. Oh my, <laughs> I'm ready. These communication skills have been hard won for C and S, neither of whom learned anything about healthy communicating and healthy sex. At the same time, S said sex was never depicted as something shameful in her household growing up, which she is so grateful for. Even so, she too had a lot to learn. We stumbled through a bunch of situations together 
and progressively gain more strength in our bonds and how well we deal with them. Like there have been instances of uncertainty or jealousy when we work through that. And sometimes situations will change over time and we just have to keep up communication and understand our limits and when things change. If communicating about sex is a challenge for you or you're not sure how to even start, C suggests starting small and knowing that you don't have to talk about everything all at once. From there, he said, examples can help. If you have anything to work on from past experiences you can share, then tell a story about yourself to your partner and see how they can help you come to terms with it. A big thing about shame for me is just looking at social norms in general and deconstructing them to see where is the actual value in this and does that relate to whatever you're thinking about and then there's there's still levels of you know dissonance and stigma to work at that's not going to be rationalized away immediately but talking to it really helps s agreed and she said it's also really important to know what your preferred style of communication is for us, we first met in college and we did a lot of our conversations through uh, instant message because that was the way to have private conversations at that time. You know, we, we were both sharing rooms. So that meant that the messaging was our safe space that we could talk. I also personally really prefer written messages because I have more time to think things through and phrase things exactly the way that I intend, I feel like I get more time to have everything mean exactly what I want it to mean. So that really worked well for me. And even now, I will sometimes type things out to have a better understanding of myself and my views on something before we end up having a conversation about it. It's also important to know that even when we try our best, we don't always articulate things exactly the way we would have liked. We may need to clarify some things later which is actually something that came up during our conversation. Toward the end, I could hear C and S giving each other knowing glances. I couldn't see them. We were audio only, but you know you can kind of feel it. C had something to set straight. Well, for the record, I do go down occasionally. It just takes a romantic mindset or a giving mood or some kind of internal push. See, I love how you can hear them smiling at each other. Before we wrapped up, S shared one more piece of advice for having challenging conversations. I think the one other thing I would say is when having tough conversations, feel free to have a break. Like it is a tough conversation. You can take time for the two of you to go eat and just talk about something else and then come back around to it. You know, it, it, does not have to be all ironed out at once, unless one of you has a date later that day with somebody else. Next, the story of Shan and Jim, as shared by Shan. Shan is a wonderful VA, a virtual assistant, who's been helping me with several projects. She also describes herself as a widowed mom who never went to school. When I mentioned to Shan that I had an episode in mind on mismatched libido stories, she offered to speak about her own experience with her late husband, Jim. Shan had been through a great deal before meeting Jim. She had endured abuse as a child, and in early adulthood, she had a fiancé who died of cystic fibrosis, and then a serious rebound relationship with a controlling man in her mid-20s. That relationship ended shortly after she had a miscarriage. At that point, Shan was in no rush to pursue another one. I figured, okay, one man died, one turned out horrible, I think I'm done for a while, and I had wanted to see the desert since I was about in third grade. There's no desert in upstate New York. <laughs> so... I was telling my friends this, and my friend brought me this great article for working in national parks. And I ended up at the Grand Canyon. And the first day, 
was Jim's 33rd birthday. And that was the day I met him. We did not like each other. He liked looking at parts of me. Uh, I felt leered at. But everything I wanted to do, I'm like, I want to see the canyon. Oh, Big Jim has hiked every path in the canyon, even the really scary ones. I'd like to learn to play chess. Big Jim is really good at chess. I'd like to hang out with some people, but I don't want a party crowd. Oh, Big Jim doesn't party. You know, he doesn't drink. He doesn't do anything. So everything I wanted to do turned out coming back to him. And then one night I had had a really hard night at work and I decided to treat myself to really overpriced six pack of Guinness. Got it back and realized I didn't own a bottle opener. And it's late. They're the only store around is closed. So I kind of went like around to the laundry room and common areas. And he's like, I think I have a bottle opener from my drinking days and I'll go see if I can find it. He brought the bottle opener and we talked for three hours. If I can have a conversation with a guy for three hours, it's pretty good bet that there's something there to build on. I've always liked to be friends with someone before I had a relationship. I don't like dating. So then he started taking me to different places at the canyon and we would talk. And I realized that we didn't see eye to eye on everything, but we saw kind of side to side on a lot of things. Shan and Jim quickly became virtually inseparable. And six months later, they flew back to upstate New York and got married in Shan's parents' yard. She did wear a white dress, by the way, and she said she did not feel embarrassed about it a bit. After they said their vows, they honeymooned in Niagara Falls. Given the short engagement, everyone thought that Shan was pregnant, but she wasn't. They just really wanted to share life as a married couple. When we came back to get married, my mother said, well, what would you have done if we didn't like him? I said, I would have married him anyway. I like him. (laughs) Even though they saw many things side by side, as Shan put it, their experiences with sexuality and what they learned about it varied a lot. Growing up, I was in a family where sex was not talked about. When I asked my mother when I was nine or 10, I think, how babies got made, She said cryptically, well, let's just say that they go in the same place they come out. And I'll tell you more when you're older. (laughs) That didn't help. Shan was very interested in becoming a veterinarian at the time. And while she was, quote, ridiculously too young to enter that field, she said, she wasn't even a teenager yet. Her parents ordered her a correspondence course on becoming a veterinary assistant. And so that's basically how I learned about sex was from the reproductive chapters and the spaying chapters in this assistant course. The only other message about sex Shan received while growing up was that sex was considered very shameful and only to be embraced in marriage. She described her mother as very, very, very abused. And her grandmother was known as the town whore. She made a living through sex work. And one of her boyfriends molested Shan's mother repeatedly for two years. And so her views on sex were very, you know, you wait until you're married, which was good for her. She was 19 when she married. I was 28 when I married. (laughs) And, you know, she said to me at one point, you know, someday I think you're going to be ashamed and sorry that you really couldn't wear white when you were married. So basically learning about my own desire was very furtive and there was no real information. You know, I think I had a couple of orgasms, had no idea that I was having them and thought I had peed in my bed. (laughs) By the time Shan began building a relationship with Jim, she felt more ready and willing to open her heart up in ways that she hadn't early on. Within a week, I think, of the time that we got together, we had sex for the first time. And then we were basically inseparable. I kind of moved in. It was the talk, have sex, talk, have sex, talk, have sex, talk, have sex, stay up all night, uh, drag yourself through work. You know, we didn't have a lot of responsibilities other than to go to work and to be together. So it was very easy for that first few months. But (laughs) pretty early on, there was a thing. 
I was apparently the first person who had ever given him a blowjob that really turned him on. And he was a little obsessive. And so he would just randomly say, blowjob. And the first few times it was adorable. You know, it made me feel great that I could do this thing that nobody else had been able to do really well for him and make him feel so good because I loved him. I wanted to feel good and it made me feel good. But after about 500 times, it wasn't funny. (laughs) And I started saying, you know, hey, if you like that, can you like ask? It took a bit for Jim to really grasp the problems there and to stop making those demands, but he eventually came around. No pun intended. Meanwhile, Jim was wonderfully loving in other ways. Kind, considerate, and so often made Shan laugh. In terms of sex, I asked Shan if he seemed to have a sense of entitlement about it. The kind you might have if you had learned that sex is something women are supposed to give to men. Yeah, and that was really what it felt like. Not only that, but he desired sex a lot more often than Shan did. He would have been a twice a day person, and I'm about a twice a month person. Uh, I like the twice a month really close together, so there's like a, a long intensity, and then I'm usually fine, which doesn't mean I can't rise to the occasion, and I was willing to come to his direction. What Shan illustrated there was what's known as responsive desire versus Jim's more common form of spontaneous desire. Unless he was under a lot of stress, he could be turned on at the drop of a hat, no particular stimulation needed. But for Shan, she only experienced that a couple of times a month. The rest of the time, her desire could unfold with some effort. For many people, that means sensual touch, kissing, quote, dirty talk, or erotic stories— And once those are in motion, then the turn-on happens. Very often, the way he would approach it would be like, want to make love? That approach became more complicated once Shan and Jim had children. Having kids and parenting affects sexual desire and sex frequency for many, many, many parents, especially whoever's doing the most caretaking. There were also other difficulties, significant ones, Beyond managing those added responsibilities, Shan and Jim's oldest and youngest were both born by C-section. The oldest was a very large baby whose position put a lot of strain on Shan's spine in utero, an area of Shan's body that had been injured when she was a kid. Their second child was born not breathing and only lived for 12 days. The nurses in the NICU told us that 85% of couples who lose a baby do not stay together. And I think I can understand why, because we grieved very differently and only because we were able to make room for each other. Like I needed to talk about it. I still need to talk. He'd be 18 this summer and I still need to talk about him because that's the only way I can, you know, care for him is to keep his memory as fresh as I can. Jim couldn't talk about it, and he felt like he had like a dark cloud over his head for months. It was how he expressed it, like everywhere he went, this dark cloud. And when he died in the NICU, Jim held him for like an hour, and I could not do that. I could barely bear to sit with them while he was holding him. He said I needed to hold him because I knew I wouldn't get to hold him again. Soon after he died, the doctor gave them the go-ahead to try for another baby, and before long... Shan was pregnant again. Nine months after that, they welcomed a healthy baby girl. As delighted as she and Jim were to be raising their two children, Shan's life remained intense. She worked in a daycare as a toddler teacher and woke up early, extremely early, every morning to care for her own kids and then spent five hours with other young children. Then she would return home just before Jim would leave for work as a chef. He worked late into the evening, and the kids loved waiting up for him. I didn't get a lot of sleep. I was being touched and grabbed and nursed on and, you know, cried on and pulled on all the time, all day long, literally all day long. And then he would roll over and look at me and say, want to have sex? Want to make love? And I... 
made the mistake of rolling my eyes a few times. And it wasn't him. It was the somebody else wants something from me. Somebody else wants to touch me. Can't I have my body to myself? And he took it as I was disgusted with him, which you know, that was never it. I was never disgusted with him. It was just that, can't you see how much I'm being touched? I need to have my space these few hours when I can sleep. I dream vividly. So I would dream about the children in the daycare. I dreamed once that there was a plastic bag over a little girl's face. And I woke up like flailing, trying to get this off her face. The children followed me. <laughs> and I don't think he understood the intensity of that. We tried to talk about it. However, Jim was a person who didn't handle criticism at all well. No matter how it was put, he didn't handle it particularly well. He had his own history and he brought his history. I brought my history. Neither one of us had learned conflict resolution. It caused a lot of issues where I think if I could do it now, I would be able to find a better way. But there were a lot of times when I tried to get into being aroused and I might if I was rested. Uh, I tried to explain to him a lot of times that housework was really sexy because there was always things that needed to be done, time, a little time to myself. Over time, Shan and Jim found ways to tend to his desire for more sexual frequency and Shan's need for more space between sex and her emotional needs as well. I know one night he came home and I had had a really hard evening with the kids. And he just looked at me and he pulled out one of our cards and he said, go get yourself some dinner. Go out somewhere by yourself and get yourself some dinner. And that was, that was really sweet. He could be very romantic if he like caught on that I, you know, needed that. While both Shan and Jim had lower desire during stressful times, Shan had more on her plate. So she said that looking back, when she did have breaks from her responsibilities, she experienced desire and arousal more easily. And when she didn't, she encouraged Jim to embrace other ways to express and fulfill his desires within the context of their monogamous relationship. I am the kind of person who's not especially jealous of things, so I didn't have a problem. Like, I bought him a subscription to Playboy because he had enjoyed Playboy. He had a nice stack of them when we met. And like, he tried to like tuck them away or something when we first met. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm not at all sexually attracted to women, but I can see beauty in women and see how if you were, these would be beautiful people to look at. And I didn't have a problem with it. So I paid for that for a couple of years. And then he said, you know, I don't really want it anymore. I tried to watch porn with him when he wanted to watch it, but a lot of it didn't have a lot of plot, you know. Yeah, I ended up laughing like way too much. <laughs> Shan said that their ability to be okay with their mismatched desires came in waves, which is pretty common. All couples have challenges and relationship areas that may need more ongoing work and asserted effort than others. Another strategy that worked well at times, Shan said, involved date nights. Unless she felt pressure along the lines of, okay, we are going to have sex tonight. Then it felt like another thing on her to-do list. They also found role play, sex toys, lube, and activity books helpful for keeping their sex life fulfilling and fun. And through all of the challenges and smooth times, those waves Shan mentioned. Shan and Jim nurtured a pretty wonderful relationship. We laughed a lot and we had some amazing, amazing adventures. We had the best backyards in the world and national parks. We laughed for hours, days, years. We laughed so much. And even after 20 years of marriage, one of us could walk into the room and the other one would be smiling. We got each other and I miss having somebody who gets me. A few years ago, they faced their greatest hurdle yet, other than the loss of their second baby. 
at the time, their kids were older and less dependent, and Jim and Shan were having more time together. After some job upheaval and financial difficulties, Jim had decided to pursue a long-held dream. He had decided he was going to do something he talked about since we were dating and start an artisanal hot sauce company. So we spent like a year working on this. I designed these really nice labels. We sold them at farmer's markets. They were getting a really kind of good name for ourselves. We were bonding a lot over this dream of his that he was making real. You know, a lot of people have very big midlife crises. For his, he pierced his ear and dyed his beard electric blue. He had an electric blue beard, and he went by the name Chef Bluebeard, and that was actually the name of his hot sauce was Chef Bluebeard. We commissioned a friend to do this cute little cartoon version of him winking with the blue beard and a chef hat on. <laughs> the kids never came with us when we did the farmer's markets. It was just the two of us. It was like our little thing that we were doing. And there were so many times when we looked at each other and we were like, you know, this is so cool. And uh, we wanted to get a new car. We went and picked up uh, a used car and had like a dinner out. So to be able to do that was really, really cool. We got back and the kids said, hey, you guys can go do that again anytime. Sadly, they were never able to fulfill their plans for more of those shared adventures. On November 13th, 2017, Jim was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He was given a 6-12 to 12 month prognosis. But on his first day of chemo, he had a heart attack. He spent 10 days in the hospital, then returned home to live out his last days with hospice care. So very quickly, I ended up shifting from wife and partner to caregiver. And, you know, the last few days of an illness like this, a person's not lucid or able to do much but he died on a friday a week before that friday on a thursday was the last time he took a shower he didn't know it was the last time but i could tell i could tell it was going to be the last because it was very difficult for him to move and he was a big man still he had lost a lot of weight but he was a big man and it was very hard for me to make sure he wasn't going to fall or anything I was helping him get dressed, and we had this ridiculous closet in our room. It had these horrible mirrored doors. And we had always said, we don't like the doors, but they had been there since we moved in. And he looked into the mirror, and he's like, oh, look, there's my wife. And it was just like his joke, you know, it was kind of a lame joke, but he was really sick. (laughs) But it just, it cracked me up and made me cry at the same time. And it was like, that was like the heart of him was that, you know, he could make a joke even then. I'm still so moved by Shan's openness and her eagerness to share about her experiences, both with libido differences and, as a beautiful byproduct, her love story with Jim. I asked her to share a bit about why she was drawn to the chance to talk about this specific topic, why she wanted to speak about their experience with mismatched desire. There's a big difference between twice a day and twice a month. It's a lot of ground to cover. And when there are children, it's kind of like covering that ground with spikes and chains and hurdles and, <laughs> and unexpected poisonous snakes and things like that. We actually, when our son was a baby, we called him coitus interruptus. Coitus interrupt us because anytime we try to have sex, he would cry. <laughs> You know, sometimes we'd go to him. Sometimes we'd try to wait it out. He'd get quiet. We'd say, oh, okay, we're good. And boom, <laughs> again. So basically, it's that we didn't handle it as well as we might have. But a lot of times we had a good sense of humor about it. We bought a role-playing book. And for a while, we'd like role-play something. We had It was like tear-out pages. And there'd be things that cost a lot of money or things that were really inexpensive. And we would each pull one each week and then surprise each other at some point in the week with whatever the thing was. And he would do things like he would come wash my back in a shower. And sometimes that would lead somewhere, sometimes it wouldn't, but he just enjoyed doing that. 
often if I was really tired, I'm large chested and he really enjoyed making love to my breasts. So that was something that didn't take quite as much from me and still gave him a lot of pleasure. So there were compromises, maybe not as many as I could wish now looking back over the 20 years that I could have made. But we did have a good and sometimes very great sex life. We enjoyed each other. We did laugh a lot. We brought a lot of other intimacy into our lives. And maybe that really helps to be able to be intimate in a lot of other ways. If you are struggling with mismatched desire in a relationship, Shan wanted you to hear this advice. I would say do the best you can to be open If you're the person who's being asked more than you really want to, understand that this is deep, deep flattery because this person wants you that much and they're not looking somewhere else for this. They're looking to you. It's not that there's anything wrong with looking somewhere else if that's something that's mutually agreed upon. But if you're in a monogamous relationship with each other and they're looking to you and coming to you with this desire, that's really a nice thing. But if you're the person who is asking and not always getting what you want, sometimes it can help to kind of figure out what would help ease the person into a more receptive mood. How else can you get that need met without actually having sex? Basically, as much as you can keep the lines of communication open, given who you are and how you connect, and learning better ways to approach the communication if that's a problem. But if you want it more and the other person isn't as into it, it doesn't necessarily mean that's about you. It might have nothing to do with you at all. It might just be everything else. And if they're trying to tell you, I'm overwhelmed, everything else in my life is big, it can help to believe that rather than think, oh, no, it's me. Because I think there were a lot of times when he thought it was him And it wasn't him. It was almost never. I mean, it's not like it was never him because sometimes we'd argued or something and it was him. But usually it was just life was a lot. And, you know, honestly, with COVID, if he were here now, it would be a lot. Shan also pointed to the value of sharing rituals with a partner as a way to bolster intimacy of all kinds. And the rituals can be really simple. One of her favorites with Jim involved coffee and conversation. Nearly every morning for many years, he would wake up a little before me. He might watch some TV or something with my daughter. But when I woke up, he'd bring me a cup of coffee. He'd get himself a cup of coffee and we'd sit in bed together, have our coffee. We might read something, might read to each other. We might read side by side. We might just talk about our lives. Do you remember when we were in that cattle stampede? Where was it where they were rounding up the cows around our truck? Where was that? And we, you know, we try to remember because we had driven across the country three times. So we had done some things and seen some things. And we try to remember or talk about different things or talk about our hopes. The kids would come and go. Sometimes we'd make love. Sometimes we wouldn't. But I think that ritual of having the coffee and talking with each other really kind of bonded and connected us and him bringing it to me because so much of my day was about serving other people having somebody serve something to me at the beginning of the day was very special and so i think that's it that that's a good thing to try to have like some little ritual that belongs just to the two of you that says i love you and i want you in my life and when the time is right i will want you To learn more about Shan and her VA business, visit timeinyourpocket.com or click the link down in the show notes. This week's listener question came from someone named T, who wrote this. My partner recently discovered how much she enjoys BDSM, and I am happy for her. However, I have no interest in this lifestyle or these activities for myself. I am both afraid that I will lose her if I just don't do all of that, regardless of how I feel, and that she will stay with me only to feel unsatisfied and perhaps resentful in time. 
This is the first time in our 12 years together that I have had real fear that we might not make it through this. Lately, it seems that we have been avoiding intimate time altogether. Any advice or recommendations would be greatly appreciated. T, you are awesome for reaching out. I have so much compassion for you and your partner as you're navigating this. It sounds really challenging. And I also so appreciate how much you care about your partner's happiness. And it sounds like you really want to work through this. Even though it's been 12 years, I can tell you every relationship goes through difficult times. And some of the hardest ones, if we go about them well, we can really grow through them. And I hope that is the case for you. Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. T, thanks so much for your question. You know, I think it's great that your partner has recently expanded her sexual repertoire and even discovered that she enjoys BDSM. But I also hear the conflict that it brings because, as you're saying, you have no interest in this lifestyle or these activities yourself. First, I just sort of want to say it's great that you're already aware there's a world of difference between lifestyle and BDSM play. So my first question is honestly, what does BDSM mean to you? Because there are truly so many activities and practices that sort of fall under that umbrella. And in my experience, many people are just intimidated by hearing the words, automatically thinking it's not for them. To me, it's kind of not that dissimilar from the word anal. People tend to have a strong reaction to that word. It's not neutral, even when if they've never had an experience. And so I sort of say when it comes to anal, have you even put a finger there, you know, rimming to even notice for yourself and your body how it feels? Because you might be 100% right and not like it, or you might be pleasantly surprised. In no way am I talking anyone into liking something they don't. I'm just inviting exploration to know from your own embodied experience. How do you feel versus the idea of it? And I'm wondering if because you're not interested in BDSM, whether you've even approached your partner with curiosity to hear more, is sort of exploring the why behind the what. By that I mean, why does she have those preferences or desires? What does it help her to feel or experience? For some, it can be a calm mind. For others, a demonstration of trust. There are many meanings and practices, and not all of them are extreme like enjoining caning with a desire or preference to leave marks. So in my experience, most interest in BDSM is playing with power dynamics and sensation play. But I'm also hearing it's bringing up a lot of anxiety for you about the security, stability, and the future of your relationship. So I'm wondering, have you even shared these ideas with her? Because most importantly, you have a strong wish that she is satisfied. Avoiding intimacy altogether is sort of what I call the lose-lose because it's not addressing your concerns and it's only going to lead to you both being dissatisfied. So my recommendation is if you haven't already, you want to educate yourself first. And two books I highly recommend are How to Be Kinky, Beginner's Guide to BDSM by Morpheus and The Ultimate Guide to Kink, BDSM Roleplay and Erotic Edge by Tristan Terramino. And this book is a collection of essays that honestly runs the gamut from sort of the how-to tutorials to the provocative essays that delve into complex questions about desire, power, and pleasure. Couples who practice BDSM are some of the best communicators as there's a whole host of rules around negotiation, communication, and consent. So after learning more, I highly recommend extensive conversations with your partner about the meaning of BDSM for her. Because as I said, what is it that she enjoys and wants to explore? And most importantly, the why. If you understand the why, it might change your own interest, although it might not. I imagine there might be some common ground of play, like a blindfold or light restraints that might turn you both on. And I also know these conversations can be emotionally loaded and therefore hard to have. If that's the case and you are struggling to not break down and to express yourselves and have a productive conversation with your partner, I highly recommend seeing an ASECT certified sex therapist who's kink informed that can absolutely help facilitate these conversations for you both. And so to me, your question is kind of the tip of the iceberg. There is so much for you both to discuss, communicate and explore, including your anxiety around BDSM and the future of your relationship. And as always, I would love to hear how it goes. Thanks so much, Dr. Megan. I really appreciate the points she brought up about definitions of BDSM and what it means to both you and your partner, T. I think it's easy to be focusing on what your partner's thinking about this, 
but also your impressions of BDSM, whether you have an accurate idea of what she's into, those things seem really, really important. I also wonder what exactly it is that's giving you the impression that your relationship could end because of these issues. I say that because I heard pain and worry in your voice as much as I can hear through writing anyway. Was there an ultimatum of sorts on her end or on yours? Are you struggling with embracing these changes in your partner's desires and lifestyle because you fear they will lead to more changes that might exclude you? I find that so often the sex issue, quote unquote, that we think is the problem often is just like the gateway. It's just the door into something deeper. So I would really take time to reflect on what those fears may be and where they're coming from on your own or with a therapist if you have access. Really trying to be honest with yourself. Sometimes this stuff brings up old wounds. Have you had other experiences in your life where a partner or someone you really cared about made a a big change and you were like, great, this is wonderful. And at the same time, you ended up feeling hurt or maybe something happened that is giving you this kind of anxiety about this now. Or it could just be about, you know, you're not into the BDSM and your partner is. And then there are ways to find compromises. Part of those compromises could even be finding sexual fun you could explore on your own, something new, while your partner is enjoying BDSM. Each person in a relationship is unique, of course, so definitely go with what feels right for you. I am wishing you all the best. If you have a question for Dr. Megan or for me, please reach out. Folks who join my Patreon community get even more access to Q&A support, more direct. You can send me private messages. I do an Ask Me Anything feature every now and again. For as little as 2 or $5 a month, you can get access to the exclusive Patreon feed, which includes a bunch of fun rewards I have already posted, like a video where I talk about sexy gift ideas and specials that you can take advantage of through Valentine's Day. There's a cockering guide, a yes-no maybe list with journaling prompts to help you delve deeper into sexual self-discovery, and more. To sign up, head to patreon.com forward slash girlboner or click the link down in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. To make sure you never miss an episode, make sure that you have subscribed. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.